The reading this morning is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, If you're new, let me uh, just kind of extend my uh, welcome to you as well. Really glad you're here. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one one of the pastors here. So... Um, we are kind of continuing our series through the Psalms of Ascent. Um, we, um, as Sue said, we're, we're really looking forward to the 3rd uh, of February. I hope you all can make it to just celebrate um, just all the Lord's done uh, in, our, in our story, in our church. Um, our kind of five years from, being, from doing this publicly, um, he's, he's done some incredible stuff um, in our midst. So. Um, and then we're planning on starting our series in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the first Sunday of, of March, so uh, we'll just kind of see how we get on. So um, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Psalm 126. Um, as we've said uh, every week, these, these are a collection of, of 15 songs. So Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, uh, they're, they're like a little uh, hymn book. Uh, hi, Maria. Ah, oh, so good to see you. Um, a collection of, of 15 songs that, that the ancient pis- people of Israel would sing as they made their way into Jerusalem for their, their annual holy days or holidays, these, these annual religious festivals that the Lord told them to, to gather in Jerusalem for. So anytime you make your way into Jerusalem, you have to go up because Jerusalem, Zion, sits on top of a hill, hence the name Psalm of Ascents. Um, so all throughout these songs, you have these themes of deliverance, uh, salvation, God's ongoing provisions for us, his great pre- preservation in our lives. Um, remember, we said that these songs, they're meant, they're meant to take you on a journey yourself. Or rather, they're meant to, to assist you on a spiritual journey, a journey that starts a long way away. So when you start in Psalm 120, the pilgrim's a long way from the holy city. Uh, and the holy city is where the temple is, where the presence of the Lord dwells. He's a long way away, and it makes his way closer to the heart of God. And that's what these songs are, are meant to assist us uh, kind of on our spiritual journey. They're, they're pilgrim songs, so they're meant to be uh, sung together. They're meant to be sung to one another, to God, as, as we're journeying closer to the Lord. And I've tried to stress every week uh, the importance of the journey itself as well, um, that it's important to stop and to reflect back on the journey, to, to, to be honest with the ups and downs, to remember uh, all that's happened, and, and for really two reasons. Firstly, because, because God has purpose in the journey, so he is, he's working, he's kind of weaving all these parts of our story together, ultimately for his glory and for our good and our joy along the way. Um, it's also important to reflect back on the journey because it, it reminds us of what the Lord has done in our lives, uh, and uh, how, the, how he's, he's worked in our lives, how he's brought us through, how he's strengthened us. 
how he's delivered us. And remembering those things, it brings us hope and it brings us joy. And that's the main thrust of this psalm. Um, I think it's one of the more beautiful of, the, of these collection of poems um, because it so closely resembles the reality of the Christian life. Um, so what I mean by that, a, a couple weeks ago we looked at Psalm 122, and that psalm's very, very positive. Uh, the pilgrim is, is filled with gladness, with excitement. He's thrilled to be standing there at the city gates. He's, he's thrilled for the way of worship. Um, and, and we should feel that gladness as well. But sometimes you might read that and and it might not describe your, your circumstances. And then we looked at Psalm 123 last week, uh, where the pilgrims are faced with the reality of life. So uh, they enter the, the, the gates with thanksgiving, this, this praise, this gladness, but then they're met with the real world. They're met with the contempt and the scorn of the world. Um, there's not much gladness or, or a kind of excitement in, in that psalm. It's the pilgrim crying out for mercy because they've had more than enough contempt and scorn. They're, they're lifting their eyes to the Lord who's enthroned to heaven, and they're asking for mercy. And some of you will read that song and be like, that one describes my circumstances. Um, but what we find in Psalm 126 is a song that you should be able to connect with no matter where, you're, where you are on the journey, because it's a song that, that reflects the reality of the Christian life, it, because it's a song with both gladness and suffering. It has shouts of joy and it has weeping. And, and remember this upside down kingdom of God that we're, we're part of? It, it, it's one where these two things go hand in hand, where gladness and tears and weeping are, are the norm for the Christian as they keep their eyes on the, on the hand of the master. They're, they're both promised to us. And this psalm shows us how they go together. And it's another community lament. So there's two community laments in the Songs of Ascent. We looked at the last one last week in Psalm 123. Um, and I think it fits perfectly to go straight into this one uh, because it carries on with this theme of waiting for mercy. So we, last week in, in Psalm 123, the people were experiencing the contempt of the world, the scoffing, the scorn of the proud. Uh, and we see that the reaction to that contempt is to lift their eyes to the one who's enthroned in the heavens and, and to wait for mercy. Their plea is, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. And submissively and loyally as servants, they, they patiently keep their gaze fixed on the master's hands waiting for that relief. But then that's it. So we, we look to him, we trust him, we submit our will and our timetable to his. We, we trust that he knows the full picture. We trust that he's working all things for our good and for his glory. But they watch, they pray, and they, they wait. And that's the end of the psalm. And, and I think this psalm seems to expand on that waiting period a little bit more. Um, so some might respond to Psalm 123 It'd be mistaken, but some, someone will say, that's a bit cruel of God, isn't it? Like, just the waiting, uh, uh, making us hang on like that. But Psalm 126 shows us that there's something for us in the waiting. Um, um, it gives us more instruction. It gives us more detail. Um, it shows us 
what we experience in the waiting, and it shows us what we experience after the waiting. Uh, Let's pray before we move on again. We're going to ask for God's help one more time. Uh, Father, we we do love you, um, and we thank you that you've loved us long before we ever loved you. And we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, to come and make a way for us to, to be near you, uh, to be close to you, to actually be able to, to be in your presence, Lord. And we thank you uh, that you are actually building us together as these living stones to be this, this dwelling place for your spirit, that we are the temple, God. Um, Lord, help us to, uh, to have that gladness, help us to, to have that excitement to gather with your people. This is not just a, a meeting, Lord. This is where your presence dwells. Uh, Holy Spirit, we again ask you for your help. And we ask that again that you would open our eyes. You know us. You know how, how hard our hearts are. You know how, uh, uh, how fleeting our minds are. So we'd ask that you give us focus, Lord. We ask that you would illuminate these words, Lord that we would be able to see Jesus more clearly. This is all for your glory, Jesus, not ours. We ask that that we would be able to decrease and that we ask that we would be able to, in this moment, take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on you, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as I mentioned already, um, what I love about Psalm 126 um, is it closely resembles the reality of the Christian journey, um, or at least it should. Uh, It should reflect the Christian life and how we navigate our way through it. Um, Because what we see in our lives is there are mountaintop moments, but there are also deep, deep valleys. Um, If we're honest, there's, there's times in our life when the Lord just seems to like bring us through and we walk with success. Have you ever had those like shoulders back, child of God like strut? But then there are also times when it feels like we're in a deep, deep valley, trotting along. Maybe the voice of the Lord seems quite distant. And this psalm has both of those things in it. But at the very center of the song, at the end of verse 3, there's these three short words that show us what the cry of our heart should be no matter where we are in the journey. And those three words are, we are glad. We are glad, people. Um, what, we're ex- what we're meant to experience is joy. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that the joy is the sign of those who are on the way to salvation. It's, it's the characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage. Um, it's the second thing that you see on Paul's list when he, when he has this list of, of, he's describing the fruit of the Spirit that, that we should bear as, as, as followers of Jesus in Galatians 5. Just after love on the list is joy. It's the first of, of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John when he turns the water into wine. So all through the Bible, wine symbolizes joy. So anytime there's a lack of wine, it symbolizes a lack of joy. And, and the first miracle that Jesus does is fix that problem at this wedding party. The joy is the, the characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage. Uh, Peterson also wisely points out, he says the joy is a consequence not a requirement. What do you think about that? It's significant. Joy is a consequence, not 
a requirement. He writes that the joy is not a moral requirement for you, uh, for, the, for Christian living. Because some of us experience um, events in our life that are full of sadness and pain. Some of us descend to low valleys in our lives when joy seems to be, have completely departed. And if you, if you haven't experienced that, then just wait, because you will. But be careful not, not to read this psalm and think, well, my mouth isn't, isn't filled with laughter uh, like the psalmist. My tongue isn't shouting with joy, therefore I must not be a Christian. Peterson writes, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It will be there, but it's, it's, a, it's a consequence. It's not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. So it's, remember, it's a fruit of the Spirit, like Paul says. And we bear that fruit. It's a consequence in that way when we abide with Jesus, when we, when we walk in faith and obedience to him. It's not a requirement, it's a consequence. But are you experiencing it? Are you experiencing joy? I guess the question is, is how do you experience joy? So if joy is, is the characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage, then how do we pursue it no matter where we are on the journey? Mountaintops, valleys, how do you, how do you go about it? Because we do chase after it a lot, don't we? Um, Aristotle says that happiness or, or joy is the meaning, the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence, which is, uh, remember we're in just an advent and we're looking at joy, and that is true. Like the, we, we, we see that the Bible, it would tell us that, the, that the joy is the reason you were created. You were created in, in the image of God. You were created to experience what he experiences, that you experience to, to, to experience his glory and to find our joy in him, to be satisfied by him. And basically, it's the, it's, the, it's the root of all your decisions. It's why you choose what you choose, because your heart is searching for joy, for satisfaction. And we search for it everywhere, don't we? Entertainment. Um, for some reason, it's always on like 9.30 on a Sunday morning where you get your like phone screen time report, like these hours a day of, of scrolling. And what you're doing is you're searching for satisfaction. You're searching for joy through getting money, through sex, through, through, through hope in a relationship. But the effects of finding joy in these things are extremely temporary, aren't they? A few minutes, a few hours, a few, a few days at most. You see, joy is the, it's the longing of your heart, but it's also the thing that's most fleeting, isn't it? Here one day, gone the next. But what um, Psalm 126 shows us is that when we decide to live in response to the abundance of God, one of the certain consequences is lasting joy. And this kind of joy that's expressed here in Psalm 126. So let's, let's look at the text. Um, we, we already said that the center sentence in the song, the, the heart uh, of it is those three words at the end of verse 3. We are glad. The central message, the, the characteristic of our journey is joy. And then you can easily divide the psalm into two uh, separate parts. So the words that come before that center message 
it's, it's all in past tense. The, the psalmist is looking backwards. And then the words that come after it are all in future tense. He's looking forward. It shows us that our, our present gladness, our present joy has a past and it has a future. Um, James Luther Mays, he's an Old Testament scholar, he summarizes Psalm 126 as joy remembered and joy anticipated. And we're going to look at the song in, in, in three sections in that way as well. We're going to break it up into verse 1 to 3, which is joy recalled, this looking backwards. Verse 4 is joy requested. And verse 5 to 6 is joy reclaimed or looking forward, joy anticipated. Joy recalled, joy requested, joy reclaimed. So verses 1 to 3, joy recalled. Starts out, he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So the psalmist begins uh, with a reflection on the kind acts of God in the past. They're reflecting back. They're, they're remembering a specific event when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Um, we're, not, we're not sure exactly which specific event they're, they're remembering here, but it, so, it shows us this. Um, and remember, this is a, it's a communal lament. So, so keep reading, and you'll see that these people have another petition. They have another plea for mercy. They're in great need. And do you see how similar verses 1 and 4 are? And so in verse 4, they're asking God to restore their fortunes. It's future tense. We're not talking about just asking him to, to give them riches and, and money. They're asking for, for restoration, for revival in the community, this future tense. But they actually start by looking back. So verse 4 is all past tense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Like, they're saying, do you remember that time when he delivered us? Like, we were, we were in such need, and he came through. The psalm shows us that we hope we look forward by looking back. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So, so being in trouble, the pilgrims, they reflect back, they remember a national crisis, which was succeeded by a remarkable deliverance. So again, we're not sure exactly the, the specific event they're talking about, but in the first three verses, we see five things about that remarkable restoration, five things about that deliverance, okay? So firstly, whatever that event of restoration was, we see that it was nearly unbelievable. So verse one, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. They, they look back and they remember that time when they were so low, so full of sorrow, and then the Lord, the Lord intervenes, and he brings about restoration, and it was so remarkable that they wonder if it was even real. Are we dreaming? Is, is this reality? Have you ever had a dream that, that felt so real that you woke up and you believed it for a little bit? Um, Jenny's done this a couple times where she'll wake up, and she's a wee bit mad at me for a while. I'm like, I didn't do anything. And she realizes, oh, it's just a dream. <laughs> I don't know what I did. But you wake up and, 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 and you think that dream is, is real for a little while. This is actually the opposite of that, where the Lord is working in real life, but it's so overwhelming that you can hardly believe it's real. This must be a dream. Uh, some scholars think that this is, that it's referring to Israel's deliverance uh, from Babylonian captivity. Um, others think that you, you, we should interpret it as a little bit more general than that. 
Um, and I think I agree with the latter, but it doesn't really matter because the point is still the same. That this was such a remarkable deliverance that their sorrow was quickly replaced by joy so great that it seemed too good to be true. And you see God doing this for his people all throughout the Old Testament. Um, I immediately think of him bringing uh, his people out of hundreds of years of slavery out of Egypt. And the narrative of that story, you read it, and can you imagine being in the moment? Like these, it would be almost unbelievable for them, these, these plagues, and the Passover, the splitting of the sea, and the joy that they must have experienced because of that deliverance. Surely we must be dreaming. And, and some of you might be sitting here thinking of a specific event in your life when the Lord has delivered you and brought about restoration and ushered in sheer joy like this. Some of you might be having a hard time thinking of one, okay? That's okay. Let, let me say this quickly. Um, if, you, if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you are now in Christ, then the greatest miracle that will ever happen to you has already happened. Uh, that you've been brought from death to life. Uh, reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. And Paul says, once you were in exile, separated from Christ, strangers to God, he says, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, uh, but through the blood of Christ, you've been brought to life, brought into the family of God. You're now a son or a daughter of the creator of, of the heavens and the earth, co-heir with Christ, future inheritor of all things. Like, that event is so amazing, you just need to open your eyes and, and remember it. Never forget the joy of that. Spurgeon says he, he turns exile into ecstasy and banishment into bliss. Um, his deliverance is, is so nearly unbelievable. We were like those who dream. Secondly, we see that uh, this deliverance filled the people with joy unspeakable. So verse two, then our mouth was filled with laughter. Have you ever experienced something that was so unbelievable, so overwhelming that you couldn't find the words in the moment and all you could do is laugh at it? <laughs> They're so full of joy that they couldn't contain themselves. They wanted to express the joy and yet they couldn't find a way. Like words are just not good enough in that moment. They're too dull a response to such an unbelievable deliverance. So all they could do was laugh. So much that their mouths were full of it because their hearts were full of it. And, and I think it's important to note that this kind of joy doesn't come from getting what you deserve. It, it's, it doesn't come from, from getting that promotion that you've worked really hard at. It doesn't come from getting the house that you've saved so long for. Now, this kind of unspeakable, all I can do is burst out in, in laughter, joy. It's the result when mercy and grace are so unexpected. It's so amazing, so overwhelming and heart-filling, so nearly unbelievable that their mouths were just filled with laughter. Uh, thirdly, we see that it led them to worship. Verse 2 
Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. As some translations have it as songs of joy. So, so when at last they could, they could finally articulate their joy with their tongues, it wasn't enough to just simply speak. They had to sing. And, and not just a song with a nice melody. No, this is like hearty singing, shouts of joy. You ever been to uh, like an Ulster rugby match and the crowds aren't just singing their songs of gladness when their team is winning, they are shouting with joy. Like, can you imagine your team like scoring the game winning try and, and everyone in the stands singing, yay, our team has won the game. <laughs> no, it's ah, the shouts of joy, yes. That's, that's what they're describing here, shouts of joy. Uh, one of my favorite songs in the Bible uh, is the song of Moses in Exodus 15. It's a song that uh, the people of Israel sang together after the Lord brought them uh, into freedom through the Red Sea, splitting the sea, then walking through into freedom. And the first, first few verses of that, it's quite a long song, uh, first few few verses say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is his name. Can you, can you imagine that scene of them standing there when the sea has finally settled down after rushing back together and engulfing the, the army that's chasing after them. This, this moment of, of stillness, of silence, when the sea settles down, the last chariot maybe, maybe floats to the ground, uh, to the bottom of the sea. And they realize what the Lord has done for them. <laughs> so unbelievable that it's just, you have to burst out in laughter. One person like, did that just happen? <laughs> and then this mighty shouts of joy as they sang the song together. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is his name. I will exalt him. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's my salvation. Like what a scene that would be. The, the measure of our worship is set by the gratitude in our hearts. So when you realize just what the Lord has done for you, when you begin to understand grace and mercy that, you've, that, that he has shown you, there's no timid worship. There's no soft singing. There are shouts of joy. And Spurgeon writes this. He says, at at the moment God brings about revival in our lives, when he restores our fortunes, when he brings about that restoration, he says the heart turns from its sorrow. When he fills us with grace, we are filled with gratitude. We were made to be like them as that dream, but we both laughed and sang in our sleep. We are wide awake now, and though we can scarcely realize the blessing, yet we rejoice in it exceedingly. 
It brought them to worship. The fourth thing we see about this remarkable event of restoration is that it impressed the nations with God's care for his people. So still in verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So uh, remember the, the whole purpose uh, of the nation of Israel is God chose Abraham. He, he chose this people group for this reason, to be a witness in the world. That Israel was called to be God's living testimony among the nations, that, that he is the one true God, that he is the maker of heaven and earth. And God's plan is to actually to reveal himself to the nations, to the world, through these people. And we, we see him do it in a lot of different ways throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's through God's purifying judgment of Israel. It really hurts. Uh, sometimes, and ideally, it would be through Israel's faithfulness and their verbal witness uh, that the Lord is good. And sometimes, like here in the psalm, it's through God delivering them out of hardship. It's through God's great deeds for his people that he will reveal himself to the world. And, and that's what happens here. Uh, through God's miraculous deliverance of his people and their response uh, in worship to him, the nations look on and they hear and they say, the Lord has done great things for them. And this shows us again that no matter what their circumstance, it's all about him. Like it's all about his glory. It's all about the revelation of his name, his goodness, his greatness. It's not about them, it's about him. And the same is true for us. Um, Listen to me, the most wonderful thing that you can do is to set the world talking about the loving kindness of Jesus. Like to live your life in such a way, to use your words and your worship in such a way that the world around you has no question who your life centers on, has no question who has delivered you, has no question who's empowering you, who's your source of joy and your source of satisfaction. They look on and it's obvious that the Lord has done great things for them. Fifthly, we see that when the people remembered, uh, they were convinced of the same thing and it brought them to joy. It says, the Lord has done great things for them. And then verse three, they reply, the Lord has done great things for us. Therefore, we are glad so, so we, again, we hope, we look forward by looking back. So they looked back, they remembered how the Lord delivered them, how he restored, how he revived them. They remember who they are in him, and it brought them joy. And remember what, what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3, he says to always be prepared to make a defense, to, to give a reason to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. And this is how we do it. We give, that, we give that answer by remembering, by looking back. How can you have so much hope? Because of what he's done. That's why. This, this really encapsulates the whole Christian defense. Okay, we have hope. We look forward to tomorrow. We look forward to, to eternity, to, becoming, to, to coming face to face with God. All because 
of what he's done. Not because of us. And I, I hope it's quite obvious to you by now that this passage, it points to the cross. So for the church, our hope, our peace, our joy, everything there is that has been given to us, it's been given to us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Okay, we look back to that moment, that nearly unbelievable moment when the Son of God, the one who knew no sin, who deserved no punishment, was killed on our behalf. And because his blood was poured out, we can now be brought near. And you've been given a name, and you've been given a future. You're now a child of God. You're now a a co-heir with him. Our joy comes by looking back and remembering that moment. Next, let's look at their petition in verse 4, joy requested. It says, look forward, uh, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. So remembering the former joy of that past rescue, they cry to God for a repetition of it. Their prayer is, do it again, Lord. Show us the mercy now that you've done in the past. Do it again, Lord. And listen, when you find yourself in that deep valley again, which you will find yourself there in times of need, in times of deliverance, we reflect back to former times when he's been good to us and we ask him to do it again. Because for the pilgrim here, there's a need for restoration. He says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. There's... There's this beautiful symbolism here uh, because the Negev is this dry, arid uh, southern region in Israel. It's dry, it's desert, it's parched. And the, the root word in Negev is actually, uh, it means to be dry, which I think is interesting. I, I don't think the writer is talking about a mere geographical dryness here. He's talking about a spiritual dryness. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the the Negev is often called the far-off country. And uh, another time you hear that far-off country is in the the parable of the prodigal son, where where in that story, this prodigal son has this deep need for for revival, for restoration with his father. And and in the Negev, this this desert wasteland, uh, for rain to come, and for its dry gullies to, to run as streams, it, it would bring forth green grass and flowers and vegetation. This, this, this is the picture of, of, of restoration, of, of revival. And I'm sure you've all watched Planet Earth and those, those scenes in like the, uh, the Serengeti, these dry summer months, when, when it just becomes like a dry desert. Uh, the, the rivers dry up, the vegetation burns away in the sun. You have all the elephants like migrating hundreds of miles just to find water and food. Um, but when the rains hit, um, the grass and the flowers like spread up overnight, just comes to life. 
And remembering their past deliverance and joy that, that that deliverance brought, the pilgrim is asking the Lord, do it again, Lord. Restore us again like streams in the desert bring forth life. Show your kindness to us again, God. Derek Kidner writes, memory so far from slipping into, memory so far from slipping into nostalgia now gives the impetus to hope. So verse one could have echoed as a sigh. Instead, it sets the tone and scope of confident intercession. So it's not a, remember what the Lord did that one time? No, they're, remember when the Lord did that? Do it again, Lord, this confident intercession. Restore us, God. That's their, that's their plea. And finally, in verses five and six, joy reclaimed. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's that shouts of joy again, this worship. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So we actually have, have these two striking images of renewal here. The first of them is this all suddenness, this sheer gift from heaven. The second is slow and arduous. The man allotted a crucial part to play in it. So, so the first one we just looked at, this sudden transformation that rains in the desert would bring, turning the dry desert into this beautiful meadow overnight, this sudden revival, sudden restoration. And then there's this other picture of restoration. It's this picture of, of heart and back-breaking farming. All the joys of revival are hard-won and long-awaited. This isn't overnight desert into meadow. Now, this person sows with tears, with weeping, and waits for the harvest. Still with hope, okay? The, the, all the hope that we've just read about is still there, still with confidence, because they remember back to when the Lord did it the first time. But they're sowing, there's, there's planting, there's waiting. Do we still pray for that, like, streams of the Negev kind of revival? Absolutely. Like, like in, the old, in, the, in the New Testament and, and throughout church history, you absolutely see moments when there seems to be this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, bringing quick revival to his people, deserts turning into meadows overnight. Do we pray for that? Yes, absolutely. But most of the time, we see this kind of, of, of long and steady sowing and reaping. Seed and a tear. Seed and a tear. Seed and a tear. But the good news is that we can be confident that's, that though sorrow may be our sowing, rejoicing will be our reaping. And those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. This is, this is, uh, this is what Jesus tells us in, in John 16. I think it's on the screen, verse 20. Jesus says, he's talking to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will, leap, uh, you will weep and lament, 
but the world will rejoice. Reminds us of Psalm 123, like it's gonna feel like the world is the one that, that, is, that is in charge, that's winning, and you're gonna weep and, and, and lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is Jesus talking, and then he gives this, this, this beautiful picture. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for a joy that a human being has been brought into the world. And he says something incredible here. He says, so also uh, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Listen, surely that's the most comforting thing that the Christian can hear. When Jesus, looking into their eyes, he says, you're gonna, be, you're gonna have sorrow now, but I'm gonna see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. There's this, um, one second. I didn't plan to go here, but I'm going to. It's this wonderful uh, um, picture of, of Jesus actually doing this for us. He doesn't just say these things, okay? He, he puts it into action. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, um, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, what does he do? We look to him, why? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and what's the result? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is that picture of you're gonna have sorrow now, just like me, but joy comes in the morning. Isn't that amazing? Listen to me, this is really important. Only for those who are in Christ is sorrow temporary and joy forever. I'll say it again. Only for those who are in Christ is sorrow a temporary thing and joy is forever. If Jesus keeps on, he keeps on talking in, in John 16, he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He goes on and he talks about receiving all these things so that our joy is full. He says, you have to ask in my name. He says, it's through me. This everlasting joy is through me. It's not found anywhere else. It's through me. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. And listen to this bit. It says, bringing his sheaves with him. He's not talking about a little bit of joy. He's talking about bundles of it. Jesus, again, he goes on in John 16. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Peter talks about experiencing joy unspeakable. Like we're not talking about a little bit of happiness here. Sheaves of joy. Your cup runneth over with joy. Joy so great that all you can do is laugh at it and then sing. Whatever the circumstances, the psalmist is sure of the harvest. And we can be too. 
Why does he have so much faith in times of sorrow? Because he remembers when the Lord did it the first time. We have hope, we have joy by looking back. Let's pray. Father, may this be such good news for us. We are so uh, distracted. I just confess that so often our eyes are not fixed on you. They're fixed on us. They're fixed on our circumstances. They're fixed on the world around us. And anytime our gaze is fixed on anything but you, we start to lose hope. We start to lose joy. Help us to see, Lord, that true and everlasting joy comes from you, Jesus. Comes through placing our our faith in you, Lord. We're prone to wander. We thank you that, that you are patient with us. We thank you that you are kind. Thank you that you love your children. Remind us again, Lord, of, uh, of the grace and the mercy that you've shown us, Lord. May that fill our hearts with joy, joy unspeakable. Remind us every day, Lord, uh, of the gospel. Help us to, to, to preach this gospel to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters every day so that we can remember. We can remember the hope that we have. Remember the joy that we have. We can finish this, this race successfully, Lord, all because of what you've done, Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord. And pray these things in your name. Amen.